I told her what I planned to do, and she said, well, that's nice. What's your goal? And I said, well, my goal is to bike from Williamstown to Provincetown and raise money. And she hesitated. She said, so, you think you're better off doing that by yourself? I thought, Jesus, she's right. Yep. I got to be an event coordinator. I got to get people to do this with me. Hey, everybody. I am Ted King. I am your host, and this is King of the Ride podcast. The month of July, done and dusted. Well, almost. So I'm recording this on the heels of the Mass Bike Wachusett Grand Fondo. That's a benefit for a terrific organization that we touched upon in our previous podcast, chatting with the one and only Mr. Richard Freeze. So as a result, I don't actually know who wins this final stage. The, the guys are lining up in France as we speak. They're probably preparing some champagne flutes and getting the stage underway any minute. Let's take a pre-race analysis. We got Mark DeMar. He has a lot to prove with the gripal insinuations and subsequent deleted tweets and apologies. Obviously, he won stage 18. That was coming on the heels of the Andre Greipel insinuation. It's been since 2003 that a French rider took the win on the Champs, so you know he wants to do that. I'd be a fool, of course, to dismiss Peter. Peter showed that he is human this final week in the Tour. It's something we rarely see, including crashing. We saw him grimace when he lost the wheel of Cancellara in the 2014 Tour of Flanders. I think it's that humanizing aspect where we see, you know, glints and glimmers of, of a grimacing Peter that really ingratiates him to a fan base that's already absolutely bonkers over the guy. So Peter, I think, will actually be up there. And I'd love to see Alexander Kristoff duke it out, too. He is not the speedster of years past. He has certainly soldiered through a lot, so I would actually like to see him putting in a dashing finish. That is my money for the final podium. Let's see what actually happens. Man, oh man, how about that final week of the tour? The Pyrenees, that dealt a blow to this race. It basically flipped the entire three weeks on its head. Let's think about where you were three weeks ago. I've literally gone on three different trips. I've pedaled my bike a lot. I've worked a lot. I've traveled a lot. I've been to five different states. It's wild to think about these guys pedaling all across France in that period. It's a grand tour is a beastly thing. The tour is composed of heroes and villains. It's protagonists and antagonists. So let's fast forward two and a half weeks from the beginning of the tour. And so no matter who you had initially in your, in your expectation for, for success throughout the tour de France, the guys you were initially cheering for, chances are a lot of them have either gone home or are way out of competition so far that it's sort of a moot point to be cheering for them for the final GC. So let's be honest. It became a race between Tom DeMoulin versus Sky. Then, of course, there are races within the race. So, you know, there's about a half dozen of those or more going on each day. We saw Primoz Rodlidge, who has a terrific name, the steely-faced dude, duking it out for the final podium spot with Froome. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think most people wanted to see three different jerseys on that final podium, which I'm alluding to, not two of Sky. Now, look, I am in no way a Froome hater. He and I raced our first Giro d'Italia's together. We hung out a lot. We chatted a lot. We spent a lot of time sharing our fondness for the English language. He and I finished two hours apart. He finished much further up GC than I did, but we spent a lot of time hanging out in that race. I actually do like Chris Froome. Which brings me to the point, protagonists and antagonists. I think a lot of us had the expectation that Froome was going to pull a Giro-like self two or three days ago and, quote, inadvertently, 
take the yellow jersey off Garrett Thomas's back. And I think we were actually quite surprised to see how close that race ended up being for third place between he and Primos. So if we are true fans of the sport, of which I am, and we believe what we hope to believe, we believe what we see, and then I look at Chris Froome and, and I applaud him. He raced a spectacular race. I like the guy. He's remarkably polite. He's very well-spoken. He doesn't mince his words. He is diplomatic to the nth degree. He carries on about how proud he is of, of Garrett, his teammate, to take the GC win. He speaks highly of his competitors. I mean, look, the guy didn't know how to descend a handful of years ago, and he won the tour descending, what, last year? We thought he was too frail for the cobbles. We, we know that he's gangly as hell on the bike, but my goodness, he is a very good bike racer. Oh, man. I mean, it's, it's, a lot of people are already dismissing him for subsequent years. It's hard to dismiss a guy when he's, he can't say he's past his prime when he's just won three consecutive grand tours and finished third at this very difficult fourth in a row. So now let's take a bigger picture and sort of take in a, a estimate of what's going on in subsequent tours, subsequent grand tours, subsequent tour to France's Tom Dumoulin, second place twice, the Giro and the tour. Now let's not forget before he was knocking bars against Froome a year or two ago in the Giro, we thought he was just a TT specialist. Now he's gone on the podium twice in incredibly difficult grand tours. I think it's safe to say he's going to change his program, go super heavy on the tour in 2019. And that is a very safe bet that he's going to end up on that podium. Maybe even top step. Another guy to think about. A very young Nairo Quintana. People have dismissed him already. He's 28 years old. He's not at all happy that Landa's on the team. He was second in the 2013 Tour de France. He still has huge power in the third week, having won that stage, although he subsequently crashed his, his not crashed out, but he didn't have the power on the subsequent day, lost a whole bunch of time, finished top 10. He's a contender years to come. Landa, like I said, Quintana's not psyched that Landa's on the team. Landa wasn't the rider we expected him to be. He signed a multi-year contract, I presume, at Movie Star, so you're never going to see the best results out of a guy when he's on a multi-year deal. Landa will be back. Rodlich. Rodlidge, that's a fun name to say. He's going to be better in 2019. He had he had an outside chance to do well. Good gravy. It's, it's a good question what Grand Tour he's going to go after, but it's very safe to say he is the new kid on the block. And of course, Garrett Thomas. What can I say about Garrett that hasn't already been said? I did say that he's at risk of being a bit frail. He's changed his entire body composition to become a Grand Tour contender. He's never smashed the third week of a tour, which he did so well this week. He was untouchable that final week. He's about as dynamic as they come. It's almost like a Peter Sagan. He can race this and win the spring classics. He can do the one-day races, the week-long races. He has some great sprinting prowess. He has a track background, and now he's a Grand Tour winner. Not just any Grand Tour. The dude won the Tour de France. So... We got a lot of really exciting racing coming up. I'm, I'm excited about the future of the race, the Tour de France. Froome says the double is possible to win a Giro Tour. I say no kidding. I mean, if luck had gone a different way, Chris Froome could have won that. Tom Dumoulin could have won the, the Giro Tour. Anyway, awesome racing on the horizon. I'm excited. Let's now get into the meat and potatoes, the crux of today's podcast. I get to sit down with Billy Starr. Billy is the founder and executive director of the Pan Mass Challenge, the PMC. We dance around it at the beginning of our conversation. 
conversation starts a bit light and then it really gets exciting later on. Please stay tuned throughout. My goal was to introduce the ride, the PMC. I do, I, I sort of dance around it in the beginning. So let's just say it now. The PMC is the biggest cycling fundraiser in America. It's 6,300 plus people riding, raising each year, each year, over $50 million. Over its time, they are approaching a billion dollars raised for the Jimmy Fund, raising funds to fight cancer, making enormous inroads in that fight. If we take a, as cycling fans, we look at cycling, we, you know, we hardly get a, a handful of people at a Grand Fondo, get a couple hundred. We look at the 5Ks and 10Ks, the events that do have 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 people. That is what the PMC is. There's 6,300 people riding. That's incredible. We say, we want that. How do you get those numbers? Well, Billy's onto something. He is a revolutionary in that regard. He invented the, quote, a-thon culture, jump-a-thon, hoop-a-thon, ride-a-bike-a-thon, 38 years ago. The purpose of this podcast is to cater to all types of cyclists. So whether you race a bike, ride a bike, ride once a day, ride once a month, once a year, chances are, if you listen to this podcast, you ride a bike and you want to see some positivity in this sport, and Billy, as a magnificent orator and storyteller, he is bringing positivity into cycling. So I'm excited about our conversation. Please, if you like this podcast, please refer a friend. Please send a review to iTunes or wherever it is you are listening. Help spread the word. Please send me questions, send me comments at all things I am Ted King on social media or he is Ted King at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Please enjoy the show. It has been a pleasure getting ready for this point, doing the due diligence. So I'm excited to sit down with one and only Billy Starr, the founder, executive director of the PMC. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure, Ted. Welcome to King of the Ride podcast. Um, so I wanted to start the conversation by introducing the ride. I know that in, if you're a cyclist, primarily in New England, but I know you, you draw from 41 different states, um, seven different countries, then you you might be aware of the PMC. I have been tangentially aware of the PMC for a while. I've had family ride in it, um, but it's not until getting ready for this conversation that I did do due diligence to figure out really deeply what the PMC is. You've you've had tens of thousands of riders go through uh, ride the ride. You've sixty three hundred, I believe, getting ready for sixty three hundred and fifteen new new record. Brilliant! That's for- outstanding. Any can you do any last minute? registration or uh, there, there are capped? some they, you know but we try not to uh, you walked in today while we're starting to assemble our registration kit so registration is closed uh-huh okay very good um did you have a particular target for this year we do uh to, i suppose to set the stage last year we gave a record 51 million dollars representing 100 percent of all rider raised revenue it's the 13th year we achieved that and that's big juju to all cycling philanthropists raising money on behalf of anything um you know this this industry is now a five billion dollar industry where you can run walk swim bike for every good cause under the sun uh, obviously 
there's great synergy here in New England, raising money for not just cancer research, but the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Uh, our average rider is not average, but extraordinary. Uh, the two-day rider who is 77% uh, of our event is averaging about $9,200 a person. Wow. And nobody could have seen that back in 1980, right. not, not myself. But this whole Athon industry has captured the imagination of what probably started with my generation uh, and, and continues well. And people who want to put skin in the game, and I mean physically, psychically, spiritually, um, through all kinds of ways of donating beyond writing a check, which is critical. Sure. So all this comes together where this year we've set a goal of $52 million. Uh, this will hopefully be achieved by some 6,300 riders, 4,000 volunteers on 12 routes through 46 towns and 360 miles of infrastructure. It's a military operation. That is exceptional across the board. And you, you mentioned the Athon concept, bike-a-thon, swim-a-thon, run-a-thon. I, I remember doing a jump rope-a-thon once upon a time in high school, uh, <laughs> elementary school. I want to walk through the, the history of the PMC from the very beginning, but correct me if I'm wrong, did, did you effectively event the Athon concept when you I think first... I figured that about 10 years into it okay. when we when we saw the PMC we were you know I, I you know after year one I literally it was something I needed to do uh, to acknowledge my mother uncle and cousin and other family relatives who had died of cancer it was not a business plan it was not a career path <clears throat> but by Sunday night of 1980 I literally said to myself that's it this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this thing big. And then, you know, about 10 years later, which was the first year, we went over a million dollars. And I remember 1989 well. My uh, pithy campaign that year was be one in a million. I knew we were going to do a million dollars. And in 1989, if you were raising a million dollars, you're legit. And because you couldn't get media interested in something that wasn't a race. Keep in mind, that the PMC precedes not just Armstrong, but Lamond. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was geeks and freaks. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of t-shirts. Well-intended people, cut off shorts. Yeah, yeah. People riding with radios on their bikes and some even smoking cigarettes. <laughs> so we had to work on that, you know. <laughs> they take a page the, out of the those 80s, old pictures. Well, we, we did a video three years ago, and it's a remarkable video. I don't think I'd live long enough to see that you know, I'm a timepiece and my, I look back at the stuff, what we dressed, the bikes we rode. I'm a, my God, that's like so archaic. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So you are a life, lifelong cyclist. I know that you were. I was not. I, you know, I certainly had biked and even, uh, grew up in the area where we biked to school, but no, I was, I was, uh, first and foremost in high school. I was a state champ tennis player. I was an all-scholastic soccer player. And growing up in Newton, we were class A. I like to say because right. Newton became dual county. Okay. Uh, but, uh, and I was a basketball player. And when I went to school at Denver, I sort of matriculated into the new age sports of biking, rock climbing, backpacking, all that Sierra Club, Rocky Mountain High stuff. I, I, I was, I was all in. And um, I started biking in the early, mid-70s, but only as one of many things I did. 
what happened in the about 76 or 7 was I started, my dad lived in Newton. I was living at home. I was making no money doing God knows several different liberal artsy attempts at whatever I thought a career was going to be. But I started getting up at four in the morning and biking 120 miles to Provincetown. I did this for two or three years, got some friends to go with me. Which to our non-New England audience, Provincetown is the tip of the, let's call it, flexing bicep that is the state of Massachusetts. That's Cape right. And, and Newton is a western suburb of Boston. So you're going from a suburban area to, and quite frankly, mid-70s, Cape was still semi-undeveloped. No kidding. And I was not a Cape person, as we discussed earlier. I was a White Mountain, that's a Maine, New Hampshire kid. And I thought, oh, this is cool. You know, this is cool. <laughs> and, you know, back then I was doing it for the beer. You know, I was yep. going to... Bike 120 miles to get on the, to make it to the 330 ferry home from Provincetown to Boston. That was the game. Just and, in time for happy hour. That's perfect. And keeping in mind, my mother died in 74. Other relatives died in the mid seventies. This idea as I was struggling, frankly, to what was I going to do with my life that using this platform, a bike ride to Provincetown. And then, of course, I was, I had been a backpacker. I'd walked about 400 miles to the Appalachian Trail. Longer was better. I had I just initially conceived that it would be Williamstown to Provincetown. So that's the northwest corner of Massachusetts to the tip of Cape Cod. And that was 302 miles. And when I came up with this idea, I went to the Jimmy Fund. I wanted to benefit cancer research. And I was fortunate enough to be direct. I mean, nobody knew biking. Nobody cared about event programming. I'm just another well-intended lemonade stand, you know? And they, that's great, Billy, go do what you want to do. But they introduced me to a woman named Joanne Goldberg, who was a volunteer there. And she said, to, I told her what I planned to do. And she said, well, that's nice. What's your goal? And I said, well, my goal is to bike from Williamstown to Provincetown and raise money. And she hesitated. She said, so, you think you're better off doing that by yourself? I thought, Jesus, she's right. Yeah. I got to be an event coordinator. I got to get people to do this with me. If I want to raise money. She was right. Shortened the event of the first year only. We rode 212 miles from Springfield. In 1981, moved permanently to Sturbridge. And we stayed in Stiller in Sturbridge. But by the year 1997, I started diversifying. The identity of the event had never changed. It was about raising money through a first-class cycling experience. But as I was starting to see some of my friends were aging, you know, the, doing a double century was a, becoming a bigger deal. Sure. And... You know, you didn't want to lose, uh, I suppose, a business term, an acquired acquisition. You know, these people knew the gig. They knew how to raise money. And I started diversifying my roots, making the roots merge until we get to this current uh, stage of where we are. You can ride one day, two days, multiple starting points, multiple uh, ending points. But for 15 years... It was Sturbridge to Provincetown. Everybody sleeps on campus. Everybody goes home on that party ferry. What were my goals? I want to build culture. 
Mm-hmm. I wanted people to be make friendships and get to know each other in a way that I believe you and I both believe you. Just, you know, you go outdoors, you mix it up, uh, you, you set a goal and you share it and, and you get closer. That's, that's the pretty simple the bicycle. <laughs> exactly. It's a shared community. That's outstanding. Um, <clears throat> have you been able to ride it every year for its 39 year history? Or was there a point, like you said, you know, instead of purely riding with the intention of raising funds, you, you notice that at some point somebody needs to direct this. This needs to be a, well, I was both, but I've ridden all 30. This will be my 39th year. I've raised personally about $1.8 million. Wow. And part of my, uh, how I saw my leadership was I was never going to ask anybody to do what I wasn't going to do myself. And I think that has some traction at the same time when I'm on the bike, uh, uh, it's clear that I can't be logistically leading the event, and I built an organization. So we have hub site leaders and road and mechanical and communications, uh, medical. All of these things have leadership. Uh, we're completely tied in through technology. Uh, there are probably 40, 50 road vans. Every single one of them has a, <clears throat> a paramedic and a bike mechanic and a communications person in the vans. So incidents happen in an event as big as ours, the PMC on this weekend will ride over collectively over 1 million miles. <laughs> we'll probably have on average uh, 10 to 15 transfers to hospitals for what bicyclists know. It's mostly road rash and dehydration, mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes worse. Uh, but it's still a remarkably safe event. And through these 39 years now, uh, Massachusetts has embraced it. What used to be regular occurrence of road rage, uh, the biggest issue now in the PMC is bike on bike. Yep. Different abilities, different headsets, different route merges, uh, familiarity of riding in a group, et cetera, et cetera. Keep in mind, these are not professional races, but... By and large, a highly experienced group. I should add one more other thing while I'm talking your ear off. <laughs> I love it. Thank that you. for the 77% who are alumni, they average eight years in the PMC. So you're not going to find that anywhere in the world. They're all ambassadors. They all get what I'm asking of. They all get what's about to happen. And I'd also say most of them are never in any kind of peloton at any time of the year beyond training with a few friends. Uh, many don't draft at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, many are very much there for the cause. They're a first-year rider that cancer has come into their life, and they find the PMC as a form of expression. So we have some people as good as you, and we got some people start biking three months ago. <laughs> And all will be accommodated and taken care of. Again, that's the community. Um, on a on a recent podcast, we were talking to fellow Massachusetts cyclist Tim Johnson, and Tim and I we basically went into a lengthy discourse about what it is to be a racer versus a cyclist, and how unfortunately sci- uh, racers have sort of this holier than thou approach to the sport, and they, they sort of poo poo. The folks who are the commuters, the family cyclists, the weekend warriors, whatever it is. And I think that, like you were just alluding to, is is a large portion of your, your demographic. Um, how, I mean, 
how do you see what it is to be a cyclist? Is it is it everything under the umbrella? Is it the weekend warrior? Is it purely the I mean, racers wear a different hat, wear a different set of clothes that is often off-putting? Yeah, I, well, first I'll let me back up and say that, you know, I think a couple of years ago I read that biking surpassed golf and walking as the most popular recreational sport. So it's pretty obvious to say that the biking community is way bigger than the racing community. Absolutely. I'm sorry, that's agree more. unequivocal. Mm -hmm. And for me as a target audience, anyone who's looking to do their personal best was never going to be my target because I'll call it as I see it. If you're about being the best, you're not about raising money for others. That's a rare combination. When people are pursuing career, uh, professional cycling apex, they're about themselves, as professional athletes have to be. Incredibly selfish. I get it. I yeah. think as a younger man, I might have resented it. I was never, uh, I'd raced a few times, but that was not what I was looking for. I just thought cycling was wonderful. Now, you know, I've grown to know Tim. I think he's got a real spiritual component to him about it. So I think he, like yourself, gets the broad spectrum of biking. For those of us who like it, Here's what I see, and particularly of your age group, you know, biking's just going to continue to grow. Uh, young people want to live in the cities that care less about car. Technology of clothes has changed. Rents have changed. Uh, dress codes at work have changed. Boston, which has one of the most inhospitable winter environments in the world, Urban commuting grew 10% three years ago in the biggest winter in 100 years. What sure. does that say? Yeah. You know, it says the bikes are smarter. People take more pride in it. They're getting uh, pay raises and insurance deductions for being healthy. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, and, it, and it's all going biking's way. Uh, E-bikes, solar bikes, Copenhagen wheels, motorized bikes, they will all find their way into the mainstream and be part of a life that I guess is certainly more familiar in Asia and Europe than it is here. But, you know, I, I like to think, you know, PMC is, is at the forefront of a certain kind of bulk, bike culture. You know, I've never really had a discussion with a pro why they would dismiss recreational cycles. Because they know an experience that most of us will never know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's fine. But for me, I'm glad for those of us who are athletic and are, you know, past our athletic primes can find uh, that this vehicle that we all love, the bike, can be such a vehicle for funding the cures for cancer. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about the major athons in this country, the big buck fundraisers, they're all bike. They're all bike. Mm -hmm. you know, the multi-million dollar one-day events or two-day events, they're all bike. And they've all followed the PMC's lead, whatever their business model is. Sure. That's, uh, it's an incredible model you've built. Um, I'm glad you talked about Boston as a cycling uh, hub because it has turned into a cycling hub and that that was a very concerted effort by the city by the mayor by uh, a lot of commu uh, communities and individuals so i do have a podcast with richard freeze the former recently former director of mass bike um great guy and and i think he and mass bike and boston in general and a lot of other cities are doing great things to to ingratiate the bike into areas that i think as a culture we tend to 
we're an automotive culture, so it's nice to have these recreating opportunities. Um, so let's see. I mean, it, the Athon fundraising concept, like you alluded to, I think is a four to five million dollar industry. Cycling, five billion sorry, dollar industry. Five billion. I meant to say I knew it was a billion. Five billion dollar industry. I think cycling is somewhere in the magnitude of one point change, one point seven billion. I'm not I'm curious your take on retail because we see a lot of retail bike shops closing as a result of a whole number of things. And I'm curious your take on that. I mean, because if you're gonna sign up for the PMC, you need a bike, you need a helmet, you need equipment, you need shoes, you need you need your bike serviced. The state of the industry is is in flux, and I don't know if you have a, any particular dem, uh, numbers you can pull. For example, I was talking to Austin McKinney; he's the director of NICA, the high school mountain bike league, and and he has numbers that the average family of a kid who is in NICA is spending twelve hundred dollars a year. If you take the thirty thousand kids who've gone through NICA, that's a huge portion of money going into the the industry. Like all the success we see in cycling is fantastic, and it's still sort of it's it's struggling. I don't have the answers about that. What I do see, people who grew up with this event, they've, you know, and again, not racers, but as cycling became the sport of rehab, didn't matter if you were a lacrosse basketball player, you were going to matriculate into cycling. Yeah. You were a runner, you're going to be a cycler. You were a soccer <laughs> player, you're going to become a cyclist. All my friends, They've had five to 10 bikes. If they have children, they've passed on and bought them bikes. So it is an interesting comment. But I would say, I, I do note that in winter, these shops, shops go very quiet. Sure. So it's almost like I, in my own town of Wellesley, we were um, bemoaning the lack of good restaurants. And one of the comments made uh, from a restaurateur, which is Ming Tsai, who's riding this year. Excellent. And uh, that, well, one of the reasons uh, is because so many people from Wellesley are gone for the summer that you can't keep a, a restaurant open. And I think that to some degree that, uh, that example applies to the cycling industry. You know, I'm cycling year-round. This morning. You know, I'm on a mountain bike. A lot of my friends are on the fat tire bikes. But you go to the store and it's empty. Uh, and I'd like to say, again, but we're not California here. So, uh, you know, you're dealing with snow. Uh, how that impacts their numbers or paying the rent, the heating bills, I suspect that's all a part of it. But you're probably looking at national numbers. And... I don't have the answer for that, other than to note that chains grow, keeping individual shops open like every individual owner, proprietor staying open in this world. Everything's consolidation and um, survival of the fittest. That's that's an observation. Yeah, it's it's got to be an incredibly tough industry, uh, but I still love the I love the individual brick and mortar. I love going in. I love talking shop. I love, again, that community. And that's something you're not going to get when you walk into a shop and look at a particular item and then quickly Google it on your phone and say, I can get it cheaper. Like, right. That right. unfortunately is not part of the general cycling community. Anyway, 
just curious. I think the strong shops will survive. It's definitely, uh, there is a great deal of consolidation, but there's plenty of really good one-off shops that, that have it. And despite the winter here in New England, there's still such a strong community, which, which I love. You go into the, the successful shops and it's, you just, you feel special. You feel like you want to high five the mechanic and have that where they've consolidated with coffee and clothing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, you go to these places in the office, and you can feel the pride. Like, it's, you know, there, there is a certain snobbism to putting on the gear and going out in a 20-degree day and saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to go do 40 miles. Yeah. You know, and, you know the, I remember when I was rock climbing in the, in the 70s, and people would literally walk up to me, and their first response would be to something they never thought about. Excuse me. Are you from California? That's what they'd say. That would be their opener of a conversation. They couldn't relate to it. And there was a bit of that with cycling, uh-huh. you know, that you looked like you were from Mars. They couldn't understand the machines. But now it's so ubiquitous. I mean, people know cyclists, whether or not they embrace them when they're riding their bikes on the road. That's a bigger question. Yes. On the road. It's tough. Park, park your bike outside the coffee shop and walk in and make a scene and you have your clip-clop shoes and the goofy clothes. I mean, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to to see a day that we are all one, but I think events like the PMC that do involve a very large cycling population that does inc- entail the entire cyclist umbrella. I think that's that's what it takes. I'll I'll make a comment. I really did feel that PMC was part of the growth of of recognizing that PMC riders were everyday people. They drove cars, had jobs, yes. had families, and were fighting cancer. Texting, worse than alcohol. It's setback safety in this this sport. Uh, in my position, to to even say it on air, mm-hmm. not good for business. Yeah, and till the penalties. Are so severe. It's an addiction, or, you know, we all got it. It's all tied to the technology, but these horrible texting and bike accidents, so it's worse than alcohol. And it's, it's real uh, for all of us who probably listen to your podcast. It's part of something that has to be on your mind when you ride a bike. And, you know, just like this presidency, I'm waiting for a change. <laughs> Yes, I don't mean to laugh on either of those things. Are you? You laugh. are. They're both serious. Yeah, they're. they're <laughs> but I'm laughing too. Frighteningly if serious. If you don't laugh, you're going to cry. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Um, switching gears, something you did also just allude to. Between 2013 to 2017, I got to read out these numbers because they're staggering. $39 million raised, $41 million, $45 million, 47 Last year, $51 million. For a total in the 38 year history, $598 million raised. Absolutely staggering number. You have set a president, and it is an interesting model because there are no freebies. There's no comp entries. There's no, hey, do you know who I am? Let me, how do I get to the front of the line? You have it across the board. Everybody raises the same for their particular event. At what point did you make that? Has that always been a hard line? There are a lot of events that people feel, you know, you, you arrive and you feel somehow entitled to say, hey, I'm so-and-so. I've, I would be remiss if I didn't say I'd, I've done that myself, going to so-and-so event and say, I want to use my notoriety, positive fame to, to bring attention to the event. 
your model works. Like, tell me about it. Well, first of all, I, I referenced earlier uh, that I never asked anybody to do what I didn't do myself. And I, that's who I am. Secondly, I worked alone for 10 years before I hired a person. And in those earlier years, <clears throat> you'd have these situations. It was pledge sheets. It was longhand. It was mail. And you had a lot of capitulating on the minimums that I was requiring because it was a pledge. In 1997, the PMC was the first event in the country that demanded you put up a credit card. And to this day, it's probably still the only event that says three times in the register, don't sign up, don't, unless you understand the following. If you sign up today and break your leg tomorrow, you owe me $5,000. This is about raising money. The PMC weekend is the candy. Tell me you embrace that. In 1997, when I did that, although we didn't go that extra step right away, <clears throat> um, delinquency went from 17% to 3%. If I were to say to you now that on $51 million, we probably went delinquent on about $180,000 of forged or falsified credit cards, the data is indisputable. And all major events eventually followed suit. The Jimmy Fund was horrified that I was doing that, that any well-intended fundraiser event would press people for the money. They, and I said, this event has never been about awareness. We tend to attract a very educated person. We all know cancer is bad. We all know get out of the sun. We all know smoking is bad. Let's move beyond that. You know, we above funding the cures. And if you want into PMC weekend, what we've studied, what I knew intuitively is you can't build this community on your own. You got to ante up. That's what we offer. It's a remarkable community of seamless logistics, high goal setting, and a palpable metaphor of using the turning of the crank of showing what happens when people work together to something bigger than themselves. And we prove it every year. It works. I'm proud of it. I'm unapologetic about it. And, you know, at this time of year, as we do this podcast right now, in comes the data. We have about 4% attrition each year. It's bike accident. It's all kind of reasons. And by and large, we say, sorry. You know, I mean, you know, don't even call or raise the minimum the minute you register so that when some of you have to fall out, this will be a moot discussion. You signed your name to this three times. There was no obfuscating the point. And the 100% pass-through is also a powerful tonic. You know, you know, this whole year-round operation is underwritten through sponsorship, registration fees, and merchandising. Your fundraising is a separate bucket, and we're still growing, and it's exciting. We'll be bigger still again this year. It's huge. Yeah, numbers speak for themselves. Year-round operation here, beautiful facility that has been renovated and grown, and, and what, eight docking bays, truck docking bays. We're, as we speak, we're 15 days out from the ride. Um, what does your day-to-day -day look like? 
And, and it, I mean, it must change at any particular point of the year. I know my, what you're doing. My day to day is for working on my speech. Uh, I still try and get out almost daily to get a bike ride. I ride. Um, you know, you know, here's reality. My friends, I have, uh, a lot of the guys I'm riding with are 10 to 20 years younger than me. There's a Darwinian nature to that, though they are all vested in keeping me healthy. Uh, still a pretty good rider. You know, we're, we're averaging 18, 19, 20 miles an hour, somewhere in there. You look fit uh, as a fiddle. We got to get out for a ride sometime. As long as you want to make it conversational, that'll be great. Okay. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm there for crisis management. I'm there for decision making. Uh, there's a lot of logistics going on, people calling receptions. I know so many of these people, you're trying to satisfy customers, but I have to say, I have so much help in here. My job, uh, people used to love to volunteer for the PMC because they really felt they were making a difference because we couldn't have gotten it done without them. Now we are the whole volunteer operating timetable is a well-oiled machine uh you know next week on reg packing day you'll have like 200 people in here and between pizzas and 15 year old kids running the jobs you know for with adults who are 50 to 70 years old it's just a beautiful thing to see so i have a lot of help and you know it's important to know that the my job has evolved through the years and but i couldn't be running a business of this nature solo anymore i'm grateful for the team i have standing um yeah it's obvious you have 10 full-time employees there's a volunteer group packing not packets they're doing something right now obviously on the benevolent volunteer side outstanding uh packing trucks all sorts of things going on okay put some questions out to the audience the social media audience here's a handful of them do you have a best and or worst PMC? Oh, I suppose best is always the next one. I obviously have fond memories. I'll, t- I'll cite one story. It was 1989, that first year where we knew we were going to do a million dollars in a year. And the mantra that year, or the slogan was be one in a million. It was also the first year where we had a guaranteed forecast of rain. I was always pretty flip with the slogan uh being somewhat secular and agnostic i I had the slogan for the first 10 years god loves a fundraiser it never rains on us and i ran with it because it was true to that point but 1989 was going to be that year and it wasn't a question of it raining during the day it was going to be a monsoon at five in the morning before we started so my great fear as an event coordinator was going to be will they show up and it was the forecast came true in those days i was wearing complete tops and bottom gore-tex outfit i'm out there like a bat the backpacker i was and i I got out of bed i cursed and i went to the parking lot and there was everybody and i realized this is a huge tipping point in the evolution what had happened well they had trained they had fundraised they were coming for their pmc experience and I said, this, this is an important moment for us. So in one sense, that was my best memory. Uh, worst memories, uh, we've had two fatalities in 38 years. Um, they're both brutal. And without going chapter and verse, you know, the loss to those families 
is incalculable. Uh, but the greater good done by the PMC is, is unquestionable. And you have to balance that. And it's like, it's not that it's an acceptable loss. You do everything to prevent it. And we will do that again, knowing full well that somewhere in the future of the PMC, there'll be another fatality. Uh, as there have been in every major biking and running event in this country. It's simply data. But when you're in charge, it's a hard pill to swallow. Understandable. Um, our mutual friend Andy Levine chimes in with, are you getting stronger with age? <laughs> well, I thought it was for the first five years of our friendship, I was stronger than Andy. But all of a sudden, he started to get serious um, and lose weight and ride even more than he does. And with his 19-year advantage on me, I think if we were age calculated, I'd still be stronger than him. I believe it. Um, but he is Sorry, stronger Andy. than me. Am I getting strong with age? I doubt it. Yeah. I, I'm trying. I've, I've got good friends like Andy who keep me motivated. You grew up a multi-sport athlete. Um, you're a cyclist now. Do you still, do you still play tennis? Do you still rock climb? There's a pretty, I had a hip sport. replacement three years ago. Yeah. And, uh, like everyone who's in that position, I waited 10 years until the pain became unmistakable. I'd probably by then I'd given up squash. I'd given up tennis. I gave up bump skiing post-surgery. The first of the surgery was amazing, but I didn't gather the, I didn't regather the weight loading um, dynamic motion. I can ride a bike. I can ski powder. I can probably backpack with light loads, but I can't ski bumps. I can't even run across the street. It's, a, it's an ugly sight. And that's humbling because I was, I thought I was going to be 50 years old again. I thought I was going to be better than I've been in 20 years. So um, I was disappointed with that, but I'm grateful. Uh, for being out of pain and for the bike, it hasn't, you know, uh, if anything, you know, when your leg bows out, like so many people, you go, that guy's getting arthritic up there. So that was able to correct that. And I got myself a new bike and it's a wonderful bike. And uh, I'm very happy about that. Very good. Um, obviously very tied around this event, your day to day, 365 days a year. Do you end up doing other charity rides? I've consulted on a lot of events, uh, certainly dozens of bike events in the country. I just did one with the Philadelphia Eagles, the Eagle Autism Challenge, uh, the Pelotonia event in Columbus, many in Florida, uh, St. Louis, L.A. And, you know, I feel good. About, I enjoy that. I enjoy meeting the people who are attracted to bike fundraising. Uh, it is absolutely self-selecting that i've picked a career path where you just don't get any scum there's mm -hmm. nothing in it for them mm -hmm. and the people i deal with when you're meeting doctors at hospital you know so dedicated to their work uh it's very motivating and i never saw the pmc as something i was going to franchise that i had to have ownership what i did see was i could help uh create sustainable bike-a-thons for worthwhile charities, but that it would be difficult in Houston to export money to Dana-Farber when you have a world-class institute there as well in MD Anderson. And, and, you know, there are 30, 
five NCI cancer centers around the country. And people who live in those parts of the country will probably be going to there for treatment, though they'd all be wise to check out Dana-Farber for whatever their needs are, because Dana-Farber is best in trade. So we're very fortunate here in Boston, and 80% of PMC people are from Massachusetts, 10% more from New England states, and 10% more from 40 states and a dozen different countries. Uh, that's pretty cool. So that's kind of how I saw how I could help. And, you know, I'm grateful that my efforts have, have paid off. I'd say so. Um, like you said, this type of event eliminates scum and they're not even in it. It, it caters only to really great people. Um, my first cousin, Amy, is married to Nat Fenelosa, who is a longtime writer of the PMC. He passed away a handful of years ago when he acquired a malignant brain tumor. And now there's his team rides PMC for him. Um, you and I were introduced via Dr. Nelson Bronco in California. He's a multi-year rider. He reached out and here we are sitting here chatting today. So yeah, the folks I've known to do the PMC are outstanding individuals. Um, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time. Um, I didn't mean to be so abrupt in ending it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing you've built here. And it's a pleasure to see it and be introduced I, I'd to like, it. If I could add one thing to Please. you know, a deduction after 38 years. When I say that, I know it sounds flip. But of course, no one would ever want to think of themselves as scum. But what I, one of the things I learned is that in life, when people fell away from me, it wasn't always personal. You have family you have a job. And if you have your act together, you then have community slash philanthropy slash volunteerism. But if your life deteriorates in any level, financially, physically, mentally, philanthropy is the first thing to go. The people who are in the PMC have their act together. And as such, they're living life in full. And that's a blessing. Couldn't have said it better. Thank you. That is exceptional. Um, Billy Starr, this has been a pleasure. Um, I, speaking of other events, I'd be remiss if I didn't invite you to the October 20th King Challenge just up the road in Exeter, New Hampshire. Um, I know PMC is on my to-do list somewhere in the not-too-distant future. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. I really appreciate the time. My pleasure, Ted. Great getting to talk to you. you well. Thank you. Thank you.